We are back. Let's do a science article or two, shall we? Um, many years back, uh, actually it was 1994 to be exact, I flew from Bolivia to Chile. I went down there to see an eclipse, which was quite an experience. But after the eclipse was over, I took a little a side trip into Chile and flew over the Atacama Desert, the driest place on Earth. And it was quite startling looking down from the aircraft um, at the center of that desert where there is nothing alive. It looks like the planet Mars. In the inner part of the desert, it never rains and it doesn't even get any fog or mist. So it was somewhat surprising to note that scientists discovered microbes actually are able to survive there in a rather unique way. They use the moisture that is sucked from the air by salty rocks. Any moisture that apparently passes over some of these rocks gets trapped by the, the molecules of salt, just as table salt uh, gets sticky with time unless you put rice grains in it. A form of cyanobacteria living inside these halite or salty rock samples have been able to basically extract the water that forms overnight, the tiny amounts, and survive and prosper. This, of course, um, is cheering to Chris McKay, the planetary scientist at NASA's Ames Research Center in California, who is the co-author of the paper that discovered these organisms. They think that um, if bugs can make a go of it in this part of the Atacama, well, they just might be able to make a go of it on the planet Mars as well. We find this quite fascinating, as you know, if you listen to this program, and we'll uh, at some point, I think, try to get Chris McKay from, um, from Ames Research Center to talk to us about this, uh, this fascinating discovery. And um, some good news in the area where politics uh, meets science. Uh, cover of Newsweek, July 17, notes there's a new greening taking place in America. From politics to lifestyle, uh, saving the environment is suddenly hot. This, uh, this is encouraging. We're going to bring someone on uh, two weeks from today from uh, the movie, the documentary, Who Killed the Electric Car? This will be coming uh, to Sacramento in August, and we'll be hopefully talking to the director and producer of, uh, of that, uh, that documentary. We also hope to speak to one of the participants in it, Stanford Ovshinsky. I believe he's about age 92, a fascinating inventor who invented a battery which corporate America bought up and... Uh, <laughs> and decided to sink. And if you're near radio tomorrow afternoon, around 2 o'clock, I hope you'll tune into, uh, of course, if you're not listening to KDVS, you'll tune into uh, KXJZ, Capital Public Radio, where I'll be sitting in for Jeffrey Callison tomorrow and talking about this very issue, um, the greening of America, specifically what we can do in the wake of global warming as citizens to uh, take the initiative to try to fix things. Yes, it's true that the Bush administration is determined to do nothing about the issue of global warming, but uh, New Scientist magazine noted that uh, an inconvenient truth, the Al Gore documentary, which I believe is playing uh, in, in, uh, in Davis currently, is uh, doing very well at the box office and generating quite a bit of buzz around the world. The article by Amanda Geffner quoted Roger Ebert, he of uh, Ebert and Siskel, uh, currently of Ebert and Roper, I believe. Uh, Roger Ebert wrote in the Chicago Sun-Times, quote, In 39 years, I've never written these words in a movie review, but here they are. You owe it to yourself to see this film. If you do not, and you have grandchildren, you should explain to them why you decided not to. The article praised Al Gore, noting that if he cannot change policy, he can change the public, and a grassroots approach uh, may be more powerful in the end. We're going to try and deal with some of these issues tomorrow, on Insight, and I hope, uh, dear listeners, that uh, you will tune in uh, 
to that. We tried to get Al Gore and we failed, but we're not going to give up. We're going to see what we can't do to bring him to the Radio Parallax audience. We've, uh, we've had some success with people that are hard to get before, and we're going to see if we can't bring the former vice president uh, uh, to speak to you. We should note, it is hard to get uh, big shots who are uh, out there in the film world uh, sometimes on this program. We thought we had a shot at Bill Maher, who's coming to uh, Sacramento this weekend. Um, thanks, uh, thanks to a tip by Benjamin Jonas Keeling, my producer over at Insight, uh, we, we, we sent an appropriate email to the person in charge of promoting Mr. Bill Maher, and they said, well, thanks for your interest, but we're booked. It doesn't take long sometimes, but we're going to keep after Bill Maher. We'd like to speak to him and think he'd be a great guest. So, um, you know, we're not going to give up. Local people are, of course, much easier to get. And uh, part of our talk tomorrow will feature Dean Barry Klein here from UC Davis from the Department of Physics. We're going to talk a little bit about the potential role of uh, nuclear energy in our future. I know that a lot of you out there just think the very idea of nuclear energy having a future is absurd, but um, I'm I'm afraid that we're going to have to um, uh, beg to differ with you on on that. It uh, has its drawbacks, to be sure, but then again, so does raising the atmosphere's CO2 level up to a thousand parts per million, which uh, Sir David King, Tony Blair's science advisor, predicts we may uh, we may see by the year 2100, if particularly if everyone in China decides they want to start driving automobiles. Of course, the burning of fossil fuels has currently put uh, our atmospheric CO2, uh, took it from 280 parts per million, which it was in the pre-industrial period, up to like 380 parts per million. This is the highest level that it has been since glaciers started marching across the Earth. This is like probably the highest it's been since something maybe halfway back to the time of the dinosaurs. It seems bound to have consequences, and they are not going to be good consequences. So, um... It's a topic that should be near and dear to all of our hearts. We're going to talk about it tomorrow, and we're certainly going to talk about it on Radio Parallax in the future. Stay tuned. All right, it is with great disgust that we, uh, we note that, uh, that the city fathers in Sacramento are considering closing Sacramento's executive airport. Uh, a lot of salivating um, real estate developer types apparently would love to turn this long-standing landmark into mixed-use development housing where we could put thousands of people in and generate millions of dollars annually for the city. We suspect that Rob Fong, the city's vice mayor, uh, is involved in this. Rob Fong, of course, was just flown back uh, by the Maloofs and the NBA to see if they can't jumpstart this effort to get to you and me, the local taxpayer, to fund a, a venue for Las Vegas billionaire casino owners to uh, play their uh, basketball team in. Apparently, Rob Fong thinks this is a terrific idea and is working behind the scenes very hard to, uh, to, uh, to keep this, um, this ludicrous idea going. I think we need to quote Marcos Breton's excellent article in The Bee on this topic. He titled it, Voters Will Speak Truth About Arena. The power players have lied long enough about their plans, is the subtitle. According to Marcos Breton, professional sports are about nothing if not deception. No one tells the truth because honesty gets you in trouble. From free agency to starting lineups to locker room fights, it's all about lies, darned lies, and the darned liars who tell them. 
This is especially true in the perverse science of taxpayer-funded arenas such as the one they are trying to build in downtown Sacramento. It's the biggest shell game in town, bigger than anything being cooked up at the state capitol or surrounding Indian gambling casinos. To follow along, one has to judge actions and not words. Therefore, it has become clear that the NBA badly wants Sacramento and the Kings to have an arena deal and be done with it before county voters in November get involved in what happens. Breton seems certain that this issue will go down in flames, and we hope that he's right on that. Uh, we certainly uh, would like to lend a hand <laughs> any way we can in, uh, in, in making that happen. All right, our obituary for this program is that of Shamil Basayev, the most wanted terrorist in the Soviet Union who died in a, a massive explosion uh, last week. Basayev was responsible for a series of terrorist atrocities in the Chechnya region, including the 2004 raid on a school in Beslan, where some 200 children died, along with the bloody 2002 seizure, seizure of a Moscow theater. We'd have to say that Basayev was a truly evil man, and I hope that right now he's burning in hell. In reading what The Economist had to say about this guy, I was surprised to learn, which I did not know, I was surprised to learn that uh, Mr. Basayev had become mixed up with the severe Wahhabist doctrines, which after the collapse of communism seeped into the Caucasus from the Middle East. For those of you who are keeping score, the Wahhabist branch of Islam is that which is found in Saudi Arabia. I did not realize that the oil money of Saudi Arabia was what was influencing terrorists throughout the, the Central Asian republics of the old USSR. What's really curious is that Mr. Basayev was uh, public enemy number one to the Russians, but they assassinated and took out an awful lot of moderate leaders before they finally got to him. Many Chechens believe that he was left alive while other comparatively moderate insurgents were not, so that the separatist cause should have only one demonic face. And it may perhaps be no coincidence that uh, he was taken out just before Vladimir Putin hosted a summit in St. Petersburg. Many have argued, I think, correctly that uh, in terms of Israel's relationship to other nations, they sometimes don't necessarily want to deal with the more moderate elements to keep a rather more evil face on the opposition. But um, we don't have time to um, expand upon that today. Final item of the day on a much, much, much lighter note. Apparently scientists, paleontologists at the Denver Museum of Natural Science, um, we're studying the Stegosaurus, that, uh, that armor-plated dinosaur with the little uh, thingy on the end of the tail. The item which in a classic Gary Larson cartoon <laughs> was referred to in a slideshow by a caveman professor as the Thagomizer, named after the late Thag Simmons. Paleontologists had been debating the function of those tail spikes, and uh, Dr. Carpenter found that one of them had been broken and healed, indicating that the Stegosaurus had indeed used it as a weapon. With the far side as an inspiration, Carpenter dubbed the spikes the Thagomizer. The article notes that paleontologists are playful sorts of people, and the idea of the Thagomizer was just too good to pass up, and it appears that is the name that's going to stick on the structure on the Stegosaurus's tail. And that is it for today's program. We thank Dr. Tom Stalkup for speaking to us about what happened uh, regarding TWA Flight 800. 
And uh, we're going to see you next Thursday at 5. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Please stay tuned for Todd. And if you think about it, tune into our show on Insight tomorrow on 88.9 FM. KXJZ.